Welcome back to Legally Empowered. I'm your host, Sahara Pines, and I'm really excited to bring this podcast to you. As an attorney and former business owner myself, I'm passionate about drawing on my own experience and insight to set my female clients up for success. I know my guest today feels the same. Erica Levin is a New York-based partner who focuses on international business disputes. Erica often serves her clients in the role of outside general counsel, partnering with executives and company leadership to advance their business goals, identify the impediments, and connect them with the smartest solutions. She also helps guide international businesses in internal investigations and in crafting and implementing compliance programs. Erica brings a unique perspective to counseling emerging companies given her experience serving as an arbitrator, a former general counsel, a fashion law professor, and an entrepreneur herself. I am so excited to have you here, Erica, to focus on fashion and some of our most common issues that founders in the fashion space encounter, especially when dealing with contracts and international aspects of their businesses. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I think that this this is an excellent idea and hopefully we'll be helping a lot of people together. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. So I know you work across a variety of industries, but can you tell us what drew you to working in the fashion space? (laughs) So I I should say the swag and I get teased for that, (laughs) but not really, although sometimes it is rather nice. Um, No, to be fair, I love the mix of creativity and functionality that exists in the fashion world. And I also saw it as an amazing opportunity to mix my love of everything international and business. I think people don't always realize how much international, you know, how many international aspects there are with respect to fashion and fashion businesses. And it doesn't matter, matter the size. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, all sizes of companies, there's some aspect that's international. So that's really what brought me there. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's funny how the, the business can morph and change. In the beginning, it started off helping with trademark issues, counterfeiting, anti-counterfeiting issues. Um, and then it really broadened into dealing with sales contracts, international sales, supply contracts, distribution, licensing, and you know how it is. As you get to know clients, they trust you more and more, and you really become their go-to. And I think that's the aspect of what we're trying to achieve here, having people understand that we're here to help no matter what the issue. And if we can't do it, someone within our firm can, but they're, they're in a safe place, <laughs> right? That's the truth with over 900 attorneys. It's like, there's somebody who excels in everything. We just have to find the right person. <laughs> exactly. So it's all about the team. <laughs> that's right. Right. So let's start with the three pieces of advice that you have for fashion entrepreneurs. Sure. So the first one is going to seem really obvious, but believe in yourself and your idea and your product. There will be so many people who are going to tell you, no, that's not going to work. And you can't be faint of heart. Obviously, take the constructive criticism, take the advice, incorporate it as much as you can, but don't let it get you down. And, you know, I think that's really the heart of the matter. Don't give up, keep going. And you know what? A lot of times things will morph into something you didn't envision, but that's okay, you know, and, and that's what really makes you successful. Um, So that would be the first, you know, believe in yourself, your idea, your product, you know what you're trying to achieve. And just because you have a meeting or two with people who don't get it, that just means maybe you have to refine your pitch or maybe you have to find different people, but it doesn't mean you're necessarily wrong, right? Um, right. Second, I really, really, really believe this. And we sort of just alluded to it. Build a good team, a good team and community and obviously legal team, but broader community. 
especially in this space, in the fashion space, cosmetic space, there have been people who have done this before. And as entre entrepreneurs who are starting out, there's a lot that you're going to need externally, a lot of support that you might not be able to have in-house. And use your network. We are tapped in, other people are tapped in, but use your network to your benefit. Not only will it make the process more fun, more comfortable, but you're going to be more efficient and more successful. And I guess, you know, third, this is going to come as a complete surprise, I'm sure, but read your contracts. <laughs> you know, so often you've got the idea, you're excited to go, and you're so excited about the opportunity, but yeah. make sure you stop, pause, read, because what's written in those contracts will come back. Hopefully it protects you and it doesn't hurt you, right? But read your contracts, get advice from someone you trust. Don't just rush into them. And I know how daunting it can be and how tempting it can be. But that's really yeah. the most important. If you take nothing out of this. <laughs> well, and we've talked about the fact that maybe. Seriously. We've talked about the fact that maybe, uh, especially younger entrepreneurs who don't have experience and are just super excited that somebody is excited about their company or about their product or services will rush to sign an agreement because they just want to get to marketplace or they um, want to get to manufacturing or what, whatever stage of the game we're at, right? So what's the number one legal mistake that you, you wind up seeing in this space? So <laughs> this is going to come as a surprise, I'm sure, but not reading contracts thoroughly is the first one. Um, and, you know, I will reiterate, I, I know that for those outside of the law and sometimes even for those of us in the law, contracts seem like they're written in an entirely different language. But it's important that you understand what's contained in them. Another piece of advice or another mistake that I often see made is that people don't think about their dispute resolution strategy. I know the dispute aspect is not sexy. It's not the exciting part, right? But a little ounce of prevention can really help you mitigate risk and protect yourself. And I really, really advise people to think about arbitration, especially ex expedited arbitration. And we'll go into it a little more. I'm happy to explain it more. But yeah. really thinking through an arbitration provision that will allow you to protect yourself and assert claims when you need to and in a way that makes sense and is comfortable to you, um, that really is important. But really, most of all, knowing the laws that are at play having that, that, that vantage point will really help you going forward. So tell me just, um, give, give me like a little bit of an overview or snippet. Like what is arbitration for people who don't really know? Sure, sure. So arbitration is really nothing more than a private dispute resolution system. And anytime you have a contract, you have an opportunity to insert an arbitration provision. This allows you to select the, the governing law, for instance, New York law or California law, the seat of the arbitration, New York or California. I, of course, am in New York. I tend to use New York law, New York seat. It also allows you to choose an institution, an arbitration institution. That institution is really important. They will administer claims. Why is this important? Not only for one, the arbitration um, will allow you to resolve your disputes a little more efficiently. They have advantages like expedited arbitration and especially for our, our entrepreneurs who are just starting out expedited arbitration allows you to seek recourse for any claims that you have get an award which you can convert into a judgment really quickly and easily and enforce and this is helpful domestically but especially if you're dealing with international counterparties it's of the utmost importance 
You don't want to be chasing someone in another jurisdiction where you know no one going into their courts on their home turf. That's really the advantage of arbitration. There are so many. It's confidential. It's more efficient. You have more control. You know the law that's applicable as opposed to having to fight. You have jurisdiction established. You know where you're going and what you're doing. Really what it is is trying to ward off potential issues down the line. Um, we can go into it further, but that I think is a good overview. I don't want to bore people too much. <laughs> Tell me about international contracts. So are there specific provisions that you need to look out for when you're working internationally? I mean, the most important thing that I think in terms of international contracts is knowing the law that's applicable, right? And so one thing I do want to advise people, especially if they're in a sales situation, purchasing supplies or selling goods abroad, there are laws that you have to be aware of. And, you know, some people will choose New York law, assuming that it might be the UCC. But if there's a, there's a UN convention on the international sale of goods, which also applies. And I've had a lot of fashion companies, experienced companies and experienced counsel who haven't realized we, we shortened the, the UN convention on the international sale of goods to CISG, but they have, they don't realize that it applies. Um, now, it, it can be beneficial, it's helpful because it's harmonized business internationally, but you want to know the law that you're dealing with so you know the rights that you have. Um, in terms of international, there's a lot that you can't control. I mean, we could go on and on, especially these days where you're, you're you know, dealing with supply chain issues, force majeure, we're in the midst of COVID, trying to recover from COVID. You know, you want to understand your provisions that are there. What are the rights that you have as the seller or the buyer, depending where you're sitting in terms of the contracting relationship? What mm -hmm. happens if you can't get your good? What are your responsibilities, right? What are your rights in order to, to assert? Um, you know, your indemnity provisions are really important. Your risk of loss, your insurance obligations. I don't want to wow. go to, you know, it's daunting, right? There's a lot yeah. of Again, I mean, I'm a great idea. <laughs> I've been practicing law for things. 20 years and, and this is, is daunting to me. Uh, it's uh, honestly an aspect of practicing in this space that I, I hadn't thought of. Uh, I can't even imagine the challenges that you must see come across your desk. So tell us what are some of the most common types of contracts a fashion entrepreneur might encounter? Like where sure. should the red flags be raised? Sure, sure. So, I mean, I alluded to this a little bit. You're going to see contract manufacturing agreements, right? If you're trying to get things from abroad that are going to be made to help you with your business, you'll see sales contracts. Those are probably the predominant at first, purchase orders, vendor contracts, all sort of akin to each other. Those are the ones where you need to be careful in terms of the law that's applicable. Know, know what's going on there. Um, so Erica, you know, let me ask you about the purchase sure. order because sure, I think, sure. you know, you, you're so excited. You have this big um, order. Is a Nordstrom or a, a big box store, are they providing you their purchase orders or are you as, let's say, a manufacturer or a distributor uh, coming up with your own forms and is this a form you're getting off the internet or are you developing your your own sales contract? Sorry, so that's there's a, really, a lot there. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's a really good question. I think for the majority of people that we're, we're talking to right now, starting out fashion entrepreneurs, they're most likely dealing with form purchase orders that are coming from the bigger, more established retailers, like you mentioned in Nordstrom's mm -hmm. or perhaps it's someone else, right? Another Another retailer. 
One thing that I think that is really important to understand is this purchase order will be governed by the various laws like the UCC that we referenced, right? But there will also be vendor compliance manuals that you will be responsible for reading, understanding. And sometimes what people don't realize is that the vendor compliance aspects, some of the provisions that are contained may supersede the applicable law. So you need to know about this, ask for it if you haven't been provided the information or a copy or a link to it and review it thoroughly. Um, you know, the purchase order is really actually a very exciting aspect, right? If you have one and you're in that position, it means, it means you've been successful, but you wanna know <laughs> what you're responsible for and wanna make sure that you don't commit any breaches. And it's important that you follow things to a T, otherwise you might have some problems. Yeah, so as an early stage founder, you might not have a lot of leverage when you get a, you know, a purchase order from a, a big box store, you're just um, getting started. So with the little bit of negotiating power that you might have, where should a, a founder be focusing their energies? So first things first, I completely understand that the negotiating power will not be equal or even. But one thing that I impress upon people or want to impress upon people is don't blindly accept what's offered to you. You know, there may be aspects that are important to you that you can be creative about asking for other things. There may be things that they will not budge on, but you mm -hmm. don't know if you don't ask, right? And so, you know, I, I will continue <laughs> to, to, to spouse the, the benefits of arbitration. That's one, right? But secondly, there are aspects where you want to make sure that the deal is attractive for you. Maybe it's more money. Chances are you won't be able to alter the price and the terms in that way. But maybe there's something that you can enlarge in terms of exposure. Like maybe you will get, a, get more of a territory or maybe you can get some sort of, you know, invitation to be part of some other program. I, I can't, you know, there are so mm -hmm. many different types of opportunities there and what really really, really is important is, you know, first follow your gut in those types of aspects, because if things seem really difficult and continue to remain difficult, it may not be a good deal, even though it seems like it makes sense. Really, right. really important though, understand what is being asked of you and make sure that it will make sense for you in the end. I've seen situations where people have been so excited about a deal that they actually have lost money on. And of course they come to, to you after, Definitely. how do I get out of this? What do I do? You know, and, and it's much obviously easier for us to help ahead of it. <laughs> obviously we'll help at the end as well. Um, but, but the most important thing I can say is there are always creative angles and ways that you could find something that's more beneficial for you that the other side might not even care about. But again, it, it depends, right? You don't want to yeah. lose the opportunity. You have to know where you are and what your situation is. Um, we can't operate in a complete vacuum. I recently saw a contract with uh, an exclusivity clause and it was really mm -hmm. broad uh, in terms of our client and we were able to at least negotiate to narrow that down so that the client was able to use some of their prints for their own purposes and their own website in addition to having a collection at a uh, larger box store retailer. That's exactly, that's a key, key example and such a good one. Protect your brand, protect your product, because remember, the other counterparty is really experienced. They've been doing this a long time and they're going to try and get the most that they can. 
right? Out of, out of the deal. So you need to protect yourself and think forward, <laughs> think long-term. And so that's exactly like paring down on the exclusivity, maybe trying to, if, if you're trying, if you're a distributor or you're getting involved with a distributor, you want to think through issues of, you know, are you online? Is it in a retail store? What's going on? Indemnity clauses, look at your exposure and your liability. You know, there might be aspects where you can, you can work through things. Minimum targets, for instance, if, if that's a situation or, or something that you have to deliver, look at the fine print. Maybe you can give yourself a little more wiggle room, you know, a little more protection. There, there are different things that will be more valuable in different deals. Each deal is bespoke, <laughs> right? But, but it's creating or, in, I guess, increasing the value for your, your business and your product. Um, that's what's really helpful if you can do it. Yeah. So going back to the idea of these dispute resolution clauses and pushing for arbitration, is there sort of a standard type clause that you see out there and what scenarios should a founder be considering? So, you know, I have my standard versions of, con you know, contract clauses for dispute clauses. There's, sure. no, there's no one size fits all. A lot of times my questions to, to clients that come to me will be, well, so where are your counterparties? Where do you envision that you may have an issue and you'll have to enforce? And if it's abroad in one jurisdiction or another, I may choose a different institution. Um, I always, as a standard, will try and do the law that's most comfortable for either, you know, the client or for us. Um, we're across the nation. It's pretty easy. <laughs> but you want to be diligent and know what the law is providing. So, you know, for me, it's usually New York law, New York seat, <laughs> and I pick mm -hmm. an institution or two that I'm comfortable with. You know, the institutions have their procedural rules. It's another aspect that, that we need to be familiar with. And so I know the way things work with the various institutions that I work with on a daily basis. And so it's easy for me. I know their case managers. I know how things progress. Um, mm. So, you know, in terms of that, I think it's, it's really important. Um, so there's a standard type but I will always add certain aspects depending. I'll make it as, as bespoke as I can. But it's really rather easy to do, at least for, for, for me, for us. We have them. We tailor them. It's not an expensive aspect. You know, this is something that we can do for people. And I've done this for clients and for our partner's clients. In a matter of an hour or two, we can at least tailor a clause that's more protecting of, of, of their interests than it was before. Um, and so these are wow. aspects, too, that I've seen that counterparties sometimes don't really give us much pushback on. Sometimes they that's do, sometimes they ask. don't. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. assuming that your counterparty is going to sort of play ball with this. And do right. you see the ability to sometimes negotiate these? Yeah, I, I've had, you know, again, it depends. If you're dealing with a massive counterparty, it might be hard right? Let's be realistic. But we're going into to deals and making contracts on various things. And so it really will depend which type of contract, who the counterparty is. The one thing that I will advise too, if we start from the beginning, we like to make all of our contracts have consistent dispute resolution clauses. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, we know exactly what we need to do and how to do it, right? And so it just becomes really routine if there's an issue. And again, we hope that there isn't an issue, but having this in your back pocket is protection. It's leverage. You don't want to be in a situation where you can't enforce on your contract. And listen, there will be times where even though you have a contract that protects you and allows you to make a claim, it's better to work it out, to negotiate. But having that leverage in your back pocket that you can file this claim and have it resolved rather efficiently, that's 
that's power that helps um, you know right. so it, it, it it's just kind of thinking thinking you know out thinking thinking forward you know forward thinking in terms of trying to make sure that you're protected but again you know there are times where it will make sense and times where it won't um, so you really we need to assess each situation as they come and thinking a few steps ahead is always a wonderful thing not that anyone wants to plan to get into a dispute with a vendor <laughs> or a customer uh, but is there insurance for that like the same way that in employment will always recommend employment practices liability insurance which of course is imperfect since it doesn't cover wage and hour issues but is the is this something that an entrepreneur can get coverage for at the outset so you know it really depends on what the issue is whether your insurance provision or your insurance contract will be triggered and I always, always urge people to speak with a broker um, to find out. Obviously, general liability insurance might cover some things. Business interruption might cover others. Depending on what you're doing, if you're doing some sort of a merger and acquisition, you might have reps and warranties insurance. You know, there's so many different insurance products that are out there. I'm not an insurance broker, but sure. we can connect you to one that, that will help you and guide you in terms of mitigation. The one aspect that I do think is really helpful though, which operates as insurance, but it's not insurance, is the fact that if you do ultimately have a dispute and you do ultimately have to arbitrate, you will get an arbitration award that thanks to the New York Convention, which is the UN Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards, the process of enforcing that outside of the country will be rather easy, um, again, the, the countries have to be signatories, right? So the party has to be in, in, an ask, in a country that's a signatory, um, but it's pretty straightforward. So it, it's, it's not formal insurance, it just makes the process more efficient. But it, we can always connect you to the appropriate brokers who can help you and guide you. One aspect of insurance that I've seen problems arise is parties or clients don't necessarily know what to get. And sometimes mm -hmm. they waste money on insurance with deductibles that are too high for them that end up meaning that they can't even really use their insurance. Right, right. So yes. that's just one example. You really want to think that through and you really want to read through the exclusions. We saw so much of this in relation to COVID and force majeure and business interruption. There were clients who, who were having a lot of trouble and they couldn't fathom that the insurance wasn't there to help them. But when you read through the policies, they weren't aimed at the loss that they had incurred, which is really horrible and, and frustrating but again, you have to understand what's in that contract, just like any other. <laughs> That's right. And out of all those force majeure clause, I was always uh, really, really impressed when I saw maybe every 20th contract actually had a pandemic listed in the force majeure clause. So exactly. Those people were, were very well situated given the, uh, the dearth of uh, that information in the, in the clauses that I saw anyway. And, and I will say on this one point in terms of force majeure, yeah. you know, once things are known in the situation where we're in now, it's a little bit of a gray area, right? Mm -hmm. Once, you know, once the pandemic has been around, it, it alters the analysis. So, so oh, people have to, to be careful. Um, we just had a huge hurricane, <laughs> a tropical yeah. storm, Ida, whatever you want to classify it as. That has led to other reliance on force majeure, act of God. So I just had someone who was relying on that. Um, again, understand how that operates, understand what that means. That takes us out of the insurance speak <laughs> and more into the contract. But yeah. 
um, it's important to understand what that gets you. And, and oftentimes all it does is give you a little more time to perform. It's not a, a save all, <laughs> you know, um, get out of jail free card, but it's mm -hmm. helpful. Um, and again, we have to also be conscious and cognizant of the fact that we're trying to do business. And as lawyers, we're here to help you with your business. We're not trying to derail things. We're not trying sure. to distract you. And so what we're doing is really trying to protect you and make sure that you stay on, on target, on path. And give options, right? I so mm -hmm. often we're not going to make a decision, but we're going to give you information to make a decision, make an informed decision, and potentially take a risk to enter into a business relationship with a vendor or a customer. But at least it'll be an informed risk and an informed decision. I can't echo that enough. And and the thing that I I actually enjoy this the most is when clients are really comfortable with us and like me in particular. And they just pick up the phone. You know, this is going on. I'm not sure what to do. Have you seen this before? Do you know someone who has? You know, that's a, a quick call and, and it's so easy to resolve. And, and so if we can help out in that way, we're, we're happy to do that. And that's really the community aspect, you know, the network. Community. <laughs> what? I said, that's my favorite part of practicing those, those, oh, let's talk it through phone calls. I love it. Exactly. And a lot of times, you know, We'll see things just because we happen to be sitting in a different spot and that's all. And you know what? That conversation back and forth is really useful. One of my favorite things is, you know, with each client in each business, there's, there are nuances that we need to understand. And once we do, then we can really help, but it mm -hmm. takes a little bit of time to talk through all of it. Um, and so that I agree, that's my favorite part as well. For sure. So I just want to, uh, switch gears for, for a minute to talk about something that's really, I think, unique in the fashion space and ask you a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of human rights protections. I, I know it's a particularly sensitive topic, but how does a founder vet and manage those overseas partners? So this is one topic that is very near and dear to my heart, and it's one that you have to be really careful with. When you're selecting your partners overseas, you need need to do diligence, whether it's you directly or, you know, we help you or someone else helps you. But you have to check references, check the past history and performance, the track record, check the financials. It is really hard to know who you're dealing with in a country far, far away, for instance, and what's happening. And we've had a lot of clients and brands who thought that they were doing everything they could and were surprised by problems. And, you know, you want to make sure that you go above and beyond. You need to make sure that you have audits or an audit company that you're checking in with, you're being proactive. You know, there are a lot of conventions that are out there that will come into play. You have to be aware of your relevant contractual provisions. More and more, it's funny, I came and I have experience in all facets of, of compliance. So it started out more in the financial area and we're seeing more and more compliance oriented work in the fashion space. And that's because so much money is being transacted over the web. In, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's being, it, it really rises. There are issues that you have to deal with in terms of the human rights. Um, and again, that just goes to knowing your partners. You also have anti-money laundering and Foreign Corrupt Practices Act compliance. Look at your contracts. More and more now, I see contractual provisions that reference and, and address this. And one thing that's really important, not only do you want to do the right thing, for your brand, for your, your clients, your people that you're working with, 
but it could be detrimental if there's a problem, not sure. only for your reputation and goodwill, but also it might present an opportunity for your counterparty to terminate. Look at how those contractual provisions are written. Like some of them are written best efforts, some are written as strict liability. That's a huge distinction. And obviously mm -hmm. everyone is trying to do the best they can, right? And, and I don't want you to feel that this is something that's daunting, but especially in this day and age when we're, we're connected and working across the globe, there are different standards for doing business in different places. And you need to embrace that, be aware of it, and try and do what you can to make sure that it's done according to what we need in the US, because that's the standard that you are going to be held accountable for. <laughs> um, wow, so and it sounds like sometimes best efforts are just not going to be good enough. Exactly. And listen, you, you have to do what you can. You keep a paper trail, right? You send your emails. You need to delineate who is responsible for what. Um, but it's really important to be proactive. Turning a blind eye will not work in this area. Um, and, you know, I think we've made great strides. We're continuing to make improvements in this area. Um, but it's really important, and especially too, I work with a lot of companies that are, you know, touting and, you know, they're, they're really committed to sustainability mm -hmm. and ethical, um, you know, ethical operations. Conscious consumerism is a huge thing these days. People want to buy products that they feel good about, and that means that they were made in a way that is ethical and takes care of the people that were part of this supply chain. And so the more emphasis that we're seeing on this, the better, but it really does create some, some, some potential problems if you're not addressing these, these, these aspects. So one of the tremendous strengths I tend to see in our fashion entrepreneurs is that their creativity is so inspiring and the visuals are amazing and it's just not a talent I have, you know? So sometimes they focus on the look. And it might cause founders to gloss over something like website compliance or trademark issues. Um, do you have any advice for look versus substance? So I have to say that I myself, when I was trying to do my own entrepreneurial endeavor, fell prey to the same problem. It's so exciting to have your branding, to have your website, all of that. It's pretty, it's fun, it's creative, it's artistic. Yeah, a lot of the things I don't get as a lawyer sometimes. That's right. <laughs> so I fully understand that, but you cannot forsake the substance. And you know, now I put on my lawyer hat. You need to really dot the i's, <laughs> cross the t's. And what do I mean by that? In terms of you know the website, entrepreneurs are surprised at the fact that there's ADA compliance issues that come up. There are privacy issues. A lot of times when you're first starting out. I will hear an entrepreneur say, well, I just borrowed this from that website and this from the other. They piece things together to get themselves live. And I applaud the effort, but an ounce of prevention, having someone look over some of those aspects just to rubber stamp it will save you a lot of trouble in the future. Um, so I think, you know, one of those aspects that you need to be careful of too in terms of the trademark component is fully vet your name that you've chosen before you've expended any energy in terms of website design or or registration of your company however you choose to form it make sure no one else is out there because we don't want you to go through all this effort only to have to pivot in a bad way and change your name yeah we <laughs> um, see so that quite a bit. i see that a lot as well and and again we're here to try and prevent what we can <laughs> that's something that's easy 
There are other yeah. aspects. Just a Google search is not enough. <laughs> a Google no, search is not enough. No. <laughs> Especially when a client comes to you with like the most amazing name and then you find out that somebody registered a trademark like a million years ago and they're not using it. But we'll chat about that in another episode. So what other challenges are you seeing uh, your fashion clients face right now? So we've kind of hit on a couple of them, right? I think the rise in, in, in e-commerce has come about, you know, people have been pivoting in terms of the pandemic. We already had seen a shift from brick and mortar to online before, but I think the pandemic further increased the level of e-commerce that we're seeing. And although that's amazing, it brings a whole slew of other issues. You know, we were starting to allude to it in terms of website compliance, right? Privacy, data protection issues. Um, so those are challenges that need to be navigated carefully. I'm also seeing, and we sort of spoke a little bit about this, a rise in compliance related issues. Even though your company is small, we're hoping it's going to grow, but it doesn't matter the size, the issues are the same. That's the reality, right? And so we need to be careful and obviously you'll do things as efficiently as possible. Um, what else is there? I think in terms of these days, find the right team. And that could be your legal team, it could be your accounting, your sales, your marketing, but really finding your team that you can go, you know, go forward and, and, and be successful with. And it may change over time, yeah. but I think that that, that is really challenging, especially in a virtual world, right? Because we're not meeting people as much. Hopefully that will change. But I think it's especially hard to connect with people, to be with people and to trust them in the way that you need to motivate them in a business sort of scenario when everything is virtual. Um, so I know it takes a lot of extra effort. Yeah, and I think making sure that your team puts you as a priority, right? Like they don't have too many clients if they're a PR agency and you're small, small fry to them, uh, that you're getting the attention that you need from all of your service providers, right? Of course, of course. And I think, you know, sometimes we're, <laughs> we all fall prey to the, ooh, big name. Make sure whoever you're working with is going to treat you like you deserve to be treated, valued, respected. You know, I, I've been involved in a lot of different deals in a lot of different ways, but you really want people who are genuinely on your side and who are going to help you succeed. And, and so do your homework there, you know, try, ask around. What I usually do if people ask me for recommendations is I will also give a reference of another fashion entrepreneur or entrepreneur if it's another sector speak to this person. And if you like what they say, then you call the person. Mm -hmm. But references are really helpful. I can't necessarily, you know, I, I can't vouch all the time. I've had a good experience, but I'm not the client. Speak to another person who has actually used them and relied on them. Makes sense. So for any female founder, what kind of advice would you share when talking to VCs or private equity groups? So this must be one of the most frustrating aspects, I think. Because, you know, oftentimes you start out with your, your seed money, right? You get started and you grow to this one, you know, to this, this size and then you're stuck. Mm. <laughs> and a lot of times, especially in the private equity space, you know, they want someone who's trusted and proven. What do you do when yeah. you're in that in between? It's really, really hard. And that's where the network comes into play. And you also have to be really, really prepared. And, you know, what's required these days has changed from what used to be. Obviously, you still need to, to have a really good pitch and maybe a good deck, but you also have to be connecting with others and harnessing your network because you won't have that opportunity if, if you don't. You know, there are very few companies or, you know, 
investors, shall we say, and I'll, I'll do broad, VC and PE, okay. that are, are focused on the fashion space. It's growing, but there aren't that many. And so I think the important thing is whether you're relying on your own network, you know, family, friends, or you're doing these generalized pitches, know who you're dealing with and understand what their investor profile is. What are they looking for? Because you don't want to waste your time. Your time is really precious. Um, yeah. Another aspect, to the extent that there's something innovative about your company and your product, ask for an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. You do not want to give away information and only to see it used some other way, right? So again, protect yourself. There may be aspects where this makes sense. There, be, there may be aspects where you're told, no, it's not necessary, but think twice. If they're resisting the NDA, that might Why? be a red flag. Exactly. Right? So we covered so much ground, but any last words of advice for our fashion founders, Erica? Of course. I mean, I, I think the most important would be one, trust your gut. Two, don't be afraid to ask questions. And third, have fun. I know this endeavor can seem daunting and overwhelming, but you have good people around you and surround yourself with those people. Go to them, lean on them and have fun with this. It's, it's going to be an amazing ride and I hope that you're all successful and, you know, call us, let us know how you're doing. Absolutely. Fashion is such a fun space to be in. Thank you so much, Erica, for joining me on Legally Empowered. We just loved having you. I could talk with you for another hour and we'll have to have you back another day, but we've just covered so much ground for our fashion industry founders and I, I think it was super helpful. Oh, it's my pleasure. And please, anytime. I hope it was helpful for our fashion entrepreneurs and you know, please call anytime. Best of luck with everything. <laughs>